The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. It's my favorite thing. It's just the three seconds as I watch you mentally prepare yourself for the level of energy before you actually start the show. <laughs> Paul, we've got a great show for you tonight. For me? It's it's for you. It's for the audience. It's for everyone. We're talking about advanced care planning with the great Dr. Rebecca Sidore. And my goodness, does she have some, some practice-changing knowledge, really practical tips, and just a very patient-centered approach. We were just talking about how her whole approach to this thing is, is just so patient-centered and practical. Uh, I can't wait for the audience to hear it. A reminder to the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And Paul, can you remind the audience, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to. As always, Matt, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we have quite the expert interview tonight. And then we also have one of our favorite human beings, uh, frequent co-host and Crackerjack producer, Dr. Leah Witt, who helped coordinate and write this episode and who helps guide us through the process. So I'm going to pass the mic to, to Leah to tell us about more about our guest and a little bit more about what we talked about. Thanks, Paul. What an intro. Um, We have a fantastic conversation tonight with our guest, Dr. Rebecca Sidori. She is the advanced care planning expert, in my view. She's a geriatrician, palliative care medicine physician, advanced care planning researcher, a professor of medicine, uh, all at the University of California, San Francisco. She directs the Innovation and Implementation Center on Aging and Palliative Care Research and the Vulnerable Populations Aging Research Corps of the National Institutes on Aging, funded Pepper Center. And she's the creator of the Evidence-Based Online Prepare for Your Care Advanced Care Planning Program and the Prepare Easy to Read Advanced Directives, which I use all the time. So we're going to talk about that. Tonight, she teaches us how to get that advanced care planning done in clinic, in your clinic visits and your Medicare wellness visits, and what we should be focusing on when we talk to patients. So without further ado, let's get into it. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. And we're really excited to get to know you and to talk about this this topic of advanced care planning. But first, give the audience a one-liner about yourself and please tell them some sort of hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm a geriatrician and a palliative medicine physician at UCSF. I live in San Francisco with my husband, Johnny. I'm originally from Seattle. I'm one of five kids and I'm an aunt of 10 nieces and a nephew. So that's super fun. So when I'm not at work, I'm maybe hanging out with them. I'm usually eating some form of dark chocolate, and I feel very fortunate to live next to Golden Gate Park, and so I'm usually outdoors in the Bay Area. That sounds fantastic. I, I have to ask, what is what is your favorite form of dark chocolate? Can you give mm. us a, a brand? It's okay to say a brand yes. recommendation. <laughs> I, am, I am more than happy because this man got me through the pandemic. The uh, chocolate is called Rakuti. It's R-E-C-C-H-I-U-T-I, Michael Rakuti. It's in the Ferry Building in San Francisco. You can get it online, and it's unbelievably good. Okay. This might be good. If anyone's looking for gifts. Yeah. yeah. Sponsorship, gifts, whatever. Yeah. Sure. Uh, That sounds sounds great. Anybody want to send me some? I'm totally happy to (laughs) also accept. And this is the high octane stuff, like 70% or higher cacao yes. or cocoa, whatever it is. Yeah. But also like just a lot of different mixes. He has something called a dark milk chocolate bar, which is probably the best thing I've ever had. Just saying. Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. Future honoraria will be paid in dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> my usual follow-up question, I, I'm always trolling for book recommendations, but I, I would also take a movie recommendation too. I feel like I've also exhausted Amazon Prime. So I will hmm. I will take book, movie, or really any piece of um, culture that I should consume just because I'm, I'm starting to lose my mind. Um, well, if you, if you want to go lowbrow, um, I've been enjoying Snoopy on the Disney Channel before I go to bed at night because they are sweet little stories 
that you can watch with your kids or other people, and it's really heartwarming. So I think you can check that out. In terms of a book that I've recently read, which I think has been helpful, I don't know if you've heard of the book called Essentialism. I've not. Um, yeah, by Greg McCowan. It's sort of about how we've got all these crazy things going on in life. And I think one of the wonderful things about being a physician is that we often have a lot of opportunities and people get us, you know, ask us to do things. And it's sort of about helping you figure out how to do the right things as opposed to doing more things. Um, and so I've been working on that a little bit. That seems extraordinarily well-timed. And I will probably actually check that one out. Thank you. That's great. Yes, it's a good. I I would second that recommendation. Definitely a very good book uh, for for many of us listening to this who are asked to do two, more things than we could possibly do. Um, I'll ask maybe our next get to know you question, which is, what's your favorite failure, and what did you learn from it? It was I, maybe it was essentialism. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I've had so many failures um, along the way, but I think in thinking about this, when I think about my career and how I got to sort of where. I am. It probably started with a major failure in medical school. So I was working at our UCSF student-run homeless clinic, and we had started one for women. And we had given a woman information about wound care. She had gotten some from the hospital, and we gave her some more. And of course, it was written in terrible technical medical jargon language, and she couldn't understand it. And she came back in the next week, and we had to call 911, and she was hospitalized because she was septic. And so it was sort of, you know, kind of set me on this journey of really thinking about health literacy and how can we design materials that people can actually read and understand and actually empower people. Um, so that was probably a very formative failure. Wow, that's a fantastic answer. Can you give the audience any advice, maybe favorite advice that you received along the way, either as a learner or as you came uh, later in your career, even as an attending? Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you about some advice that I've recently just received in the last year that's kind of been game-changing. And this actually might actually help your listeners when they're getting anxious and thinking about having advanced care planning conversations, because it's about worry and saving our energy. And it's about asking herself this question. So what if it's easier than I think it's going to be? So what if it's easier than I think it's going to be? And I, I think about all the energy I waste. I think many of us do catastrophizing about the grant that's due or that angry patient or that this patient's going to get upset. And our brain kind of creates these negative stories. But just by asking that question, you sort of break that cycle. And then nine times out of 10, it, it actually really usually is easier than your brain is telling you it's going to be. This is this is all great. <laughs> we could just do advice for the next 15 minutes. I feel like that would be really helpful for me. <laughs> I think we should get a pick of the week from Leah. Uh, I have a really exceptional pick of the week, if I do say so myself. Um, it's a podcast that I started listening to called Your Unapologetic Career by Kemi Dole. She is a OBGYN at the University of Washington, and she is a career coach for academic women of color. She has a weekly newsletter, a podcast, an Instagram, a Twitter. I think I follow her on every platform. I, <laughs> I don't qualify for her coaching session, so I'm getting her in every other way that I can. But I, the gold that she shares about, I think the, my favorite um, takeaway from hers is getting out of the trainee and institutional mindset and um, sort of shifting toward what is your role in academics and what's your goal in your career? I think it can be applied pretty broadly in medicine. What a great recommendation, Paul. <laughs> Do you have a pick of the week? Oops, I know sorry, Paul's going to follow this up with like a death metal band. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I um, so I'm. I'm it does not that it needs my help, but I'm actually going to recommend the movie The Green Knight. Uh, I'm not sure. It's it's obviously critically doing very well, despite the world you know kind of ending right now. And I, you know, I won't go through the story, even though it's relatively simple. Actually, maybe I will briefly, but the Green Knight shows up to the Knights of the Round Tables. They're about to celebrate Christmas and makes the offer that anyone who can land a blow upon him can have his axe, but then he'll be able to return the whatever blow happens in a year. And so Sir Gawain chops his head off and the Green Knight picks up his head and rides off laughing. And then a year passes and it's basically about Gawain's journey to then repay off his side of the debt. And it is it's a movie I've not been able to stop thinking about. It is visually beautiful. It's somehow like epic and intimate at the same time. And the performances by Dev Patel and Alicia Vikander in particular are spectacular, but everyone's really great in it. And it's basically 
a movie about a character trying to reckon who he is with who he thinks he's supposed to be. And it actually, it felt kind of applicable to Doctors for a Change as opposed to my usual random recommendations in terms of it's not quite about imposter syndrome, but kind of because he knows that he's supposed to be this great noble knight. But also, how does he actually achieve that nobility and, and him kind of wrestling with that question as he goes to fill as part of the bargain? All of this sort of high fantasy and these sort of fascinating vignettes happen. So it's a really it's a really amazing movie. I can't recommend it highly enough. So if you get a chance to see the Green Knight in any form, I, I can't I can't recommend it more. Well, I'm going to skip a pick of the week. Those were some great uh, recommendations. Uh, audience, check out Essentialism. That's the closest I'll get to giving a pick of the week. Our episode today is sponsored by Grammarly Premium. You know, we've talked about Grammarly on the show before. This is a weekly show. We have weekly show notes. Those things can be like 12 pages in a Google Doc, and I can't edit them because I don't know grammar, but Grammarly helps me. It helps me with tone, helps me with clarity suggestions and vocab. What do I mean by that? Well, Grammarly makes sure that I don't repeat unnecessary words. It highlights things and says, hey, this may be a little confusing for the audience. Consider rewording this. It also makes suggestions. It says, hey, you've used this word a bunch of times. Maybe use this word instead. And Grammarly can even set the tone if you want to. So maybe you want it to be humorous. Maybe you don't. But you can pick from a number of different tone settings that they have. And what I love about Grammarly is it is seamless and follows me throughout my journeys on the computer, whether it's in Microsoft Office, Gmail, or whether I'm just working in Google Docs, it follows me all over the place and my internet browser. So Grammarly has been so helpful to me who does a lot of writing. So cut down on your editing time and write more confidently with Grammarly Premium. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Why don't we get to a case from Cash Lack and Leah, would you start us off? Sure. Um, so our case today is Ada C. Polster. Her friends call her ACP. She's a 78-year-old woman who's been your primary care patient for years. She has very severe COPD. Uh, her FEV1 is less than a liter. She has to use oxygen at night to sleep. And she was hospitalized one time in the last year with an exacerbation due to rhinovirus, not COVID, but rhinovirus. You haven't seen her in person since February 2020 because of the pandemic. And she's afraid to leave her house in spite of being fully vaccinated. That last COPD exacerbation terrified her, and during one of her recent video visits with you, she asks, what would happen if I got COVID-19? Do you think I would survive? So let me start by asking you, Rebecca, um, she's starting the ACP conversation with her question about possible future illness, which actually, I mean, she opened the door for that conversation. Yeah. Before we get going, um, can you define for us what's advanced care planning, and for you, what are the key pillars of advanced care planning? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's actually a very interesting question because the definition is evolving. So I think traditionally it's been really focused on this one-time checkbox advanced directive form. And, you know, after several sort of failed randomized control trials and other studies, you know, people in the field have been thinking like, well, should we be expanding or thinking about this definition in a different way? So I can tell you that there was a consensus definition by a bunch of experts it was done in 2017. And let me just find it here. I will read you that definition, and then I will tell you what I think the definition is. <laughs> so the definition, and by the way, this was a Delphi panel that I um, sort of spearheaded. And there was like a lot of people couldn't come to consensus, um, but this is as, as good as we could get, is to say that advanced care planning is a process that supports adults at any age or stage in health in understanding and sharing their personal values, life goals, and preferences regarding future medical care. So I think that's great. That was about five years ago. And I can tell you a lot has been written about maybe expanding that even further to really include preparing people for communication and decision-making both now while they're dealing with medical you know, decisions and illness, as well as their future and end-of-life medical care. I know. I think it's interesting. So for the audience, probably when they hear advanced care planning, maybe they're thinking this is just an advanced directive or code status. Right. But I think the point is it's more than that. And I've heard you speak on other shows about there being pillars to this. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think now is a good time to introduce those, like, or or how how you conceive like the parts of this advanced care planning is not as more than just like these tangible things, like or code status, advanced directive. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, oftentimes in you know medical, you know, and legal professionals, we sort of want an easy answer, and that's why I think we went to the checkbox. It was easy to measure. It's this form we can be sort of done with it. But when we think about the human condition and what happens when we're sick and in the hospital, like it's messy, right? Um, and people change their minds and there's all these things to think about in terms of of context. So it's not surprising to me that when we just made advanced care planning this little teeny tiny thing of just a form and a checkbox, that maybe it didn't work out so well. And you know, if you're alluding to some of the pillars that we've talked about, we actually conducted a scoping review. So there were studies that were done reviews that were done sort of in the last, I don't know, looking at data from the last 20 years or so, showing that some advanced care planning studies work really well, but some really don't. And the question again was why. We did a scoping review looking at randomized control trials of advanced care planning in the last decade. And I think what we found sort of unequivocally is that what advanced care planning seems to really be doing, and it's really what patients want, is decreasing, you know, burden stress, you know, cognitive suffering of caregivers and our family members who might be needing to make these decisions for us. And that when we think about advanced care planning, it's actually very complicated because it's not just one thing and it involves it involves patients, it involves surrogate decision makers, it involves clinicians, it involves the community in which people live in and are thinking about these things and the social norms. It involves the health system. And do you have an electronic health record that can capture all of these things? Do the laws in your state really support this? So it's it's I think we're learning that this is a very complicated process, not to scare your listeners, because I still think that there's some simple things that we can do to fix the problem, but it's 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 sort of a big complex uh, process, not sort of just a form. Can you talk just a little bit about when you begin this process? Like I feel like there'll be times mm-hmm. when the opportunity will declare itself and there are times where it's necessitated and maybe even kind of urgent. But from an ideal standpoint, if you had your choice and you had the opportunity, sort of when when is this when is the right time to at least sort of start the discussion? Because it sounds like this is not one and done. This is the initiation of a conversation that then continues. Right. You know, I think if I, you know, if I had my way, we would be normalizing this really from the beginning of adult medicine. So we ask kids when they go off to college, do you have an emergency contact? Well, your emergency contact might also, for some people, wind up being their medical decision maker if something were to happen. And so I think thinking about advanced care planning, you know, it doesn't make sense to ask, you know, a 25-year-old healthy person what their code status preferences might be. But it probably does make sense to ask them who who might speak for them if they couldn't speak for themselves. So I think it's something that if we normalized and it just became regular, you know, part of care, I think we as clinicians wouldn't feel so worried about bringing it up because it's just what we do. And I think patients wouldn't be so freaked out if you're bringing it up because they've heard it before and it's just part of the regular paperwork. So for Ada, do you have any idea of exactly what you might say in your your clinic visit with her? Like, how would you fr- how would you answer her question, um, and how would you sort of pivot it to talking about advanced care planning? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first of all, it's like she's bringing up emotion and she's scared. And I think, to be honest, the one thing that I've learned is if somebody's bringing up emotion and I come back to them, we'll like, we'll fill out this form. That usually doesn't work out so well. So I think, you know, attending to her her emotion and just saying, oh, it sounds like you're really scared about this. Can you tell me a little bit more? And honestly, that might be the only question that you need to ask her because she could say, I've been seeing this on the news or my sister got sick and I don't want that to happen to me. And then it could start sort of start the whole conversation. Um, but c- because Leah, as you were saying, she really is, you know, uh, opening the door. So I think the other thing is, as a you know primary care clinician, we also know that these conversations sometimes get brought up at the end of the conversation when you have your hand on the door and you're needing to move on to the next patient and you're thinking to yourself, well, how, how can I, what can I do and how do I, how do I do this? 
And I think because many of your listeners are outpatient uh, providers, I know that people just don't have time. And so I think, how can we think about this in terms of how could we help her? And I've got 10 people in my waiting room and I don't know what to do now. So I think, you know, attending to her fear, figuring out sort of what's going on. If you have time, we can talk a little bit about some of the quick things that people can say. If you don't have time, I think this is where you can give people information to learn a little bit more. And so I'll just tell you very quickly about our free Prepare for Your Care website and easy-to-read advanced directives, which we have in English and Spanish for all 50 states, and are a little bit more, instead of the checkboxy stuff, they're a little bit more focused on values and goals and preferences. You know, But we have shown sort of in our research that people can engage in those things on their own. We've tried to make it easy so people can do it at home. And our studies show that if people do this at home on their own, they actually come back to your clinic empowered to have a conversation. So people who have gone through prepare, like 50, they're 50% more empowered to start a conversation about advanced care planning on their own. And many of these people can maybe complete an advanced directive or start these conversations with their family. So if you're really, you know, stretched for time, that's one of the things that you can do. And we also, you know, if you're lucky enough to work in a team-based environment, like we are as geriatricians. If I don't have time, I think it's also okay to ask for a social worker to help or to at least give people the information if you're finding yourself short on time. But let's say that Ms. Polster <laughs> says this to me at the beginning of the visit, and I actually do have time. And I've talked to her about her emotions, and she says, oh, well, I just see things on, on the news, and I'm not really sure you know, what we should do. And just to tell people, too, on the PREPARE website, we have a per, you know um, tools for providers and organizations. And one of the things I'll tell you about, because it's free and anybody can download it, are simple scripts for advanced care planning to really make advanced care planning so easy that front desk staff could ask these questions, a nurse, social worker, a physician, anyone could start asking about advanced care planning. So if you're pressed for time, I ask about a surrogate decision maker. I ask them, and we could talk about how to do that, if that would be helpful. I ask them if they've actually talked to that person, because sometimes that, again, is the only question that you need to ask, because this person might say, oh, yeah, it's my husband or it's my sister. And I say, well, what have you talked about? And it's like, oh, well, let me tell you this were to happen to me, I told her that I never want or I absolutely would want. And sometimes that just, it's one question and you've gotten all the information that that you need or want. So I also just ask about advanced directives because sometimes people have this in the back drawer. Sometimes they've done this with a lawyer 10 years ago or some other provider gave it to them and they know what it's for, even if they haven't done it. And it can spark that conversation. If somebody doesn't know what it is, I will, again, show them our easy-to-read advanced directives and just orient you know, them to the process. Can you tell us how you asked them about the surrogate? You mentioned that, and then maybe yeah. we can get into some of the other scripts that you use when you're opening these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think – so on those simple scripts, and I might even just read what I have on the simple scripts so that sure. people know what's on it. Um, you know, I'll say, I just want to like, let's take a step back and I want to take a moment to talk to you about advanced care planning. This involves choosing an emergency contact and the medical care that would be important to you. So first, I'd like to ask if there's someone you trust to help make medical decisions for you, if there ever came a time you could not speak for yourself. And then if they say yes, you know, then I say that's great. And then, and then I say, well, you know, what have you talked about together? And you quickly learn if that person never told this other person that they want them to play that role. Or like I said, you find out all this other information. So I would do that. And then again, if I had more time, instead of just skipping to the advanced directive and handing them the paperwork, I would actually ask them to say like, and you know, I really want to take a step even further back. And I kind of would like you to tell me about your life. And specifically, what brings your life joy and meaning? And what does quality of life look like for you? And I bring this up because I think as clinicians, we're trained to ask, hey, do you want CPR or mechanical ventilation or not? 
And then the patient says, oh, I want CPR and mechanical ventilation. And then we say, wah, wah, wrong answer. <laughs> you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have answered that way. And it's like, okay, well, let's just turn it on its head because that's really not the question that we should be asking. We should be asking about what brings somebody joy, what does quality of life look like, and what sorts of outcomes would not represent somebody's quality of life. Because if we do that and we know what that looks like, we are the clinicians and we know based on your prognosis and whatever medical problems that you might have, I'm worried that if you had this treatment or if you went and did this, this is what your outcome would be. And you 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 told me that that really wouldn't mean quality of life to you. Let's talk about whether or not this still makes sense for you. So I would say before we even talk about any treatments, I think it's super important to ask people about what their quality of what their quality of life might look like. So I would do that. Then I would actually ask them about any prior experiences that they may have had of their own illness or a family member or something they saw on TV like for COVID and you know just ask like you know has any of this happened to you has anybody gotten seriously ill and then what was that experience like? Like, what did you think went well and what didn't go well and why? And if somebody might tell you like, well, I was in the ICU and I was intubated, it's like, oh, wow, like, tell me about that. And would you be willing to go through that again? Or my sister got COVID and was in the ICU for three weeks and it was really horrible and hard. It's like, okay, well, tell me about that. How, like, if that were to happen to you, how, how would you feel? And what are you most worried about? And again, Sometimes people can't talk about themselves in this moment or project into the future, but they can tell you about their how they feel about experiences they've had or a family member has had. So I think that can be really helpful. And then, you know, once I have that information, like I said, it's sort of like piecing together what they've told me about what's important to them and who they are as a person and their values, any prior experiences that they might have had. And then if she's still saying, well, like now what do I what do I do? Should I go to the ICU if I have COVID or, you know, those kinds of things. I can help tra- – I'm, I'm like the translator for her to kind of help put that into context. There's another tool that I use often, and I use it for everything from blood pressure medication to advanced care planning that really I think can normalize this. And the answers to what I'm just – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you to make sure that I get it right – can can really kind of, again, give you almost all the information that you might need to start your advanced care planning information and to maybe even help somebody complete an advanced directive. So I will say it can sometimes be helpful to think in general about what kinds of medical care would be important to you. For example, some people feel that living as long as possible is the most important thing to them, no matter what their quality of life may be or the pain that they may go through. And other people, and I will sometimes use my hands and say on the other end of the spectrum, other people feel that there may be some health situations that they know they would not want to go through, such as not being being able to wake up from a coma, needing to live on machines. Have you thought about this before? What type of person are you and where do you fall along the spectrum? So you've just opened it up. If somebody says, well, you know, I'm the type of person that wants to live as long as possible no matter what, your conversation is pretty much over, at least for that time being. And if somebody tells you like, well, there really are some health situations that I wouldn't want to go through, you can explore what those things are. And then, like I said, help match the treatment that somebody might receive with what their what quality of life means to them. I was hoping you were going to bring up this last point, Rebecca, because I've seen this in action. I've seen you do this with patients, and I think it is so effective. This is not a visual medium. But to see, you know, your hand sort of span this, like a dial, like, are you here? We're, we're in this spectrum, are you? And it sort of clicks for people. They can kind of point, oh, I'm here. Or now that you've made this dichotomy, it's clear to me which end I'm at. It's really mm-hmm. valuable. And sometimes I will, I will even dial down to be more specific, particularly for patients who might be seriously ill in the hospital and say, on one end of the spectrum, if somebody found themselves in a serious illness situation like yourself, again, they would say they'd want to live as long as possible. And some people all the way on the other end of the spectrum will say that, you know, if they were very sick, 
they would really want aggressive treatments to keep them comfortable, but that they would prefer to have a natural death and die outside of the ICU. Where do you see yourself? I mean, you can get very specific, but it allows people to not feel pinned in because some people, a lot of people will say I'm somewhere in the middle, and then you can have a conversation about that. All right, Rebecca, I wanted to ask, we, you know, we're having what feels like like important philosophical sort of broad conversations with patients. I'm, I'm just wondering from a practical standpoint, what the documentation looks like uh, moving forward. So as you're having these conversations and kind of getting a broad sense of where patients are philosophically, like how do you document that? And like how, I, I think one of the things that makes people nervous about this is how legally binding is it? And am I going to get myself in trouble? And sort of how, how do I make sure I'm representing the patient's wishes appropriately? So mm-hmm. when you're when you're going through a visit, how are you sort of making record and making sure you do it in a way that helps protect the patient and their wishes? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll tell you my pet peeve is when I see a chart and it says full code or DNR, DNI, because that gives us no information about this this person. Um, And so, you know, we can get into oral directives and things like that. But in primary care, you're you're usually documenting the conversation that you just had with the, the patient. And That information can be so incredibly helpful when you're trying to get context, either as like the next provider that's taking care of the person, or if they go into the hospital, having primary care notes are incredibly important. The one thing I will say, and you know, all health systems are different, and this is definitely improving over time, but figuring out how to put that information in a central place. So we did a study where basically we found that most really important, rich conversations that primary care providers were having with their patients buried in progress notes that people would never <laughs> find. Yep. So using what, you know, if you have epic dot phrases or if there's like a central place that this information goes in your electronic health record, I'd really recommend, you know, putting it there. But in terms of the logistics, like, this person chose their sister because they come to their medical visits with them and that person lives close by. Or they said that these things would be important to them because of the situation that they had or experienced. That context is incredibly important. And it's not you're not saying that this is an oral directive, again, which we can talk about. That usually happens in an urgent hospital situation. But that context really means everything when other clinicians and family members are struggling to figure out how to make the right medical decision for someone. So the, cause typically the, the forms that I think a patient's filling out are like their advanced directive, which says what kind of treatments they would or wouldn't want um, based on their health status. And then there's a, then they d- designate a healthcare agent or healthcare proxy. It's called a bunch of different things. Maybe you can talk about that. And that is the person that's supposed to look at the advanced directive and act on their behalf if they can't. That's my understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. So those, what you're talking about is like adding a little bit more like rich, um, you know, background, what the patient values and things like that to this, which traditionally I haven't thought of as part of this process. But I guess this is the expanding definition of advanced care planning that we're kind of getting into. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like what, from a medical legal standpoint, like what do we have to document? Yeah. I mean, I think from a medical legal standpoint, to be honest, clinicians don't have to document anything, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but that is that is true. Um, or you can just say full code or DNR, DNI, but again, that doesn't, like I like to say, especially to trainees, like help your colleagues who might find themselves at two o'clock in the morning in the ICU trying to figure out, you know, what to do for this person. And and I'll give you an example. I took care of this person for a very long time. They were a very frail, older individual who had come from the Philippines and had for a very long time told me very clearly that he wanted a peaceful, natural death, and all of this was in my notes. And then as he was getting sicker, he had come to find out he had had a petition in to bring his children from the Philippines for over 20 years. He was getting closer to the top of the list, but he found out that if he died, that the petition would die when he dies. So he changed his code status and also wrote in, you know, we talked about it because his daughter was still going to be making these decisions um, from afar and 
how he would want that to go. And he said it was okay for her to change those decisions if she thought that that was in his best interest. So what was on his chart was full code. But what was in my note was all of that information about the reason that he changed his code status and what was important to him and what was his family wrestling with and that it was okay for his family to change his code status. And that's what wound up happening. But without any of that context, as the ICU doctor told me later, like they wouldn't have had anything to go on to anchor that conversation. So I think about this type of documentation as being anchor points, both for you to carry on the conversation with your patient, but also for your colleagues who might have to use that information, you know, sort of in the heat of the moment. And if there's, I, I guess that kind of gets to from from reading your stuff and and hearing you on other shows. I I think, and I can't remember if we said this on air yet or or if this was off air before. But one of the things that it seems like we know advanced care planning is really good at is alleviating the guilt of the people that are going to survive this person who is unable to make their own decisions. And I think the example you just gave is a, is a, is a really strong example of that mm-hmm. where. Because we knew so well what the patient wanted when he was able to tell us that the family probably was able to do that with a lot less guilt than they would have otherwise. Exactly. Our sponsor today is Green Chef. Audience, you remember Green Chef. They've been a sponsor on the show for quite a while now. They have meal plans for every healthy lifestyle. Whether you're eating keto, paleo, whether you like a plant-powered diet, or even if you just want to eat delicious, healthy, balanced meals, then Green Chef is for you. Every week they have over 30 great meal choices. Of course, the ingredients are pre-portioned. They have easy-to-follow recipes. All the food is USDA certified organic, so that means you don't have to worry about where your veggies or your proteins are coming from. You know that they're coming from quality sources. And Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit offsetting 100% of their plastic use and 100% of their carbon footprint and emissions. So you can feel good about being green while you're eating this delicious food. As I've said in the past, I don't cook much or when I do cook, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't understand seasoning. I don't understand flavor combinations. But with Green Chef, they make it easy for me and I can look like a hero in the kitchen. And as I've said before, I love making these meals with my kids so they can learn how to cook and I can feel good about the food that I've made. Go to greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb 100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So I did want to ask, you know, it sounds like finding a surrogate decision maker and defining that and documenting that is, is one of the sort of the foundational processes when talking about advanced care planning. I feel like this comes up a lot, especially in the inpatient side of things. If that's not possible, is there this is there an automatic order or default order as to who next to ask about um, serving as a circuit decision maker, or does it vary by state? How how is that determination made, and how should clinicians think about that? Yeah, it it really does matter by state. So sometimes people are surprised to hear that every single state has its own laws, and so it's it's completely different. So I think in a crisis situation in the hospital, if somebody doesn't have a surrogate, then I would definitely talk to. Um, you know, legal counsel to figure out what's going on in the state to know who the next person is. But I think it's also another reason why, regardless of what state you're in, we really try to help people name a decision maker, even if they don't want to talk about any of the other advanced care planning stuff, because I think a lot of patients and clinicians and families don't know which states have hierarchies and what that might mean. So just to be on the safe side, I think really helping people name someone is was really important. Well, Leah, how does our case with Miss Polster end before I know we have a, another case to to move on to? Yes, yeah, so you have a really rich discussion with Miss Polster. She visits prepare for your care. She documents her surrogate decision maker. She opens up the conversation with family members and it turns out her brother Paul is also your your patient. 
And inspired by your discussion with Ada, he comes to you and and wants to talk about advanced care planning. He's got early dementia. He lives with his partner who helps him with paying bills and managing medications. Otherwise, he's actually pretty independent. He's especially interested to learn about what the future could hold as his dementia progresses and what decisions in particular he should plan for. And actually, his partner is also interested in this topic because he Know, wants to know what Paul might wish for if he has to make decisions on behalf of Paul. So, Rebecca, when a patient of yours has dementia, we're in this early stage right now, mm-hmm. how do you determine if he's got capacity to make the advanced care planning de- decisions, like naming a surrogate, understanding com- complex decision-making, things like that? Mm-hmm. That's that's a great question. I think it comes up a lot. But I th- I think when we think about Capacity for advanced care planning, it's the same when we think about capacity for for other things. So can this person communicate a choice? Can they, you know, demonstrate understanding of the situation and the consequences? You know, and the the talk with you a little bit about the why or the reasoning behind the the thought process. And I think particularly for people who have you know, memory impairment, this might be somebody that I would ask on more than one occasion to make sure that it's consistent over time. As an example, again, I I had a patient who had actually very advanced um, dementia, uh, couldn't make decisions for pretty much most of um, their medical care. But every time I brought up advanced care planning, it's like a light would go on, they would perk up, they would pay attention, and they had very clear wishes and goals that they articulated in the same way every single time I brought it up for years. So that's just an example of somebody could have really advanced dementia and still be able to have capacity even for something as complicated as advanced care planning. Yeah, that's interesting how I, I, I that's not the first time I've heard something like that where even no matter how much someone is not with it, they're like very consistent. And then sometimes if you talk to family, they'll they'll say, oh yeah, they've they've been consistent about that sort of thing even before they were in this position. And that I do find that that is that is helpful to know. With this patient and with our our previous patient, I mean, the previous patient, she came to us and it sounded like that was the whole purpose of the office visit was to was to get some of this advanced care planning discussion going. And for the purpose of, you know, documenting, let's say this is an annual Medicare wellness visit and you're trying to document that you've had this advanced care planning discussion, you know, is it, how important is it to have like specific paperwork done versus just document that you're talking about these things? And because from a practical standpoint, I think A, it takes longer than probably five or 10 minutes to do these things. And then B, you know, the you kind of move things along over time as you have these discussions. Patients aren't always starting in a place where they're ready to make these decisions. So how do you think about that? Is it is it okay to just do part of this at a visit and document what you can and then just kind of keep going on over time? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like planting any seed that's planted, you can kind of build off of that over time and and as I said, you know, as a, as a geriatrician, um, which I you know often call it a team sport because it really is, there are other people that can help in this process. So, you know, like I said, uh, you know, the nurse could maybe give patients advanced care planning information. You could maybe set up an appointment for someone to start talking about these things with a social worker. Different places have things like group medical visits for advanced care planning, which are some things that that people can do. And I would say this is also system specific. I can tell you about some of the things that we've tried to do from a system standpoint when you're thinking about, okay, uh, advanced care planning is a metric and did I meet the metric for advanced care planning? At our institution, there's something, our population health has really talked about like, well, what is clinically meaningful advanced care planning? And clinically meaningful advanced care planning, sure, it might be a pulsed form or advanced directive, but it might be naming a decision maker with documentation that the person isn't ready to go on to other things. It might be a note about a conversation that you had, even if it is, again, the person, we gave them advanced care planning information, but they're not ready and they want to come back to it at, at you know another time. Um, so I think it's, it's the difference between... Um, 
you know, what clinicians can do to help their other clinicians and then what the health system might require of you or be looking at, you know, you to do. And like I said, I think a lot of health systems are realizing it isn't this one and done checkbox, but really thinking about what is clinically meaningful. And to me, any kind of conversation, anything that moves the needle even a little bit is clinically meaningful. I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a left-hand turn, but I, I feel like one of the things that I, I'm often sort of shocked at the amount of um, privilege we have in terms of hearing about the sort of the very private details of patients' lives. And I feel like one of the, the last taboos is probably the financial stuff. And yet patients are still very happy and comfortable talking with that about us when they might not be about others. So I guess this is my really long-winded way of asking, you know, should financial planning and financial discussions, just because it can cause such such stress and such acrimony end of life if you're not careful, should that be part of the discussions that we're actually having with patients? I think that is a great question. And I think particularly for for patients who have dementia or cognitive impairment, we should be thinking about some of that planning, um, you know, particularly so that we don't end up in abuse situations and things like that. And I think, you know, as medical providers, we often think of, okay, there's like medical planning over here, and then there's like financial planning over here. But I think people who live in the real world, like this is just life, you know? <laughs> and so people are thinking about like, oh, I want to plan for my burial or cremation, or I've been thinking about a will. And like all of that is related and is kind of this entree to medical planning. So um, I think one of the cool things um, that we have access to in San Francisco, and I know that there's more and more of them across the country, are that we get to work with lawyers. So there are these, you know, medical legal partnerships where lawyers will actually be part of the clinic or the hospital. There definitely aren't enough of them uh, for all of the need, but I think that that's a really great way to kind of tie in the finances and some of that concern with some of the medical stuff. I know uh in, in places where that's not available, there are attorneys who specialize in elder care issues or estate planning issues. Absolutely. Because sometimes, uh, or probably more often than I like, you, you meet the patient that hasn't declared these things and then it's too late, but they do have some, they have a house or they have financial resources and they have some family members and you know, you're know you trying to get it figured out as best you can um, or mm -hmm. help the family figure it out as best as you can. Right. I think for our patient here, Paul, so he came to us, he has a partner, and it sounds like he has someone that he's designating that's going to be able to make his decisions. Maybe even his sister would be next in line. But what about patients that don't have um, don't have someone that's a clear surrogate decision maker? How do you handle that? Any tips on that for a patient like this? Yeah. I mean, and just to say that it's it might be more common than people think. Like in our research, we find somewhere between 10 to 15% of people will report that they don't have somebody that they trust, you know, to play that role. So I have to say, when I know that, it means that I flag them to make sure that I make an extra effort to think about an advanced directive on file or to talk to them about their goals and wishes. And then once I do that with their permission, essentially share that with as many of their contacts as they're willing or able to to let us do that. So for example, some uh, patients we've shared with like the front desk staff of their assisted living facility or their SRO hotel or a case manager that follows them just so that we make sure that as many people might have access to that information if, if somebody else cannot speak up for them. And then of course, making sure that it's in the electronic medical record and easy to find. Rebecca, I was wondering if you could give us some advice about how to mediate maybe our own internal instinct about what we would think is the best course of action for a patient. Who knows if that's, you know, values that are different or just our assessment of their, um, you know, health status. What would you say to clinicians about trying to maintain a, a neutral stance in having an open mind and productive conversation when talking mm -hmm. to a patient like that? Yeah. I mean, I think the moral distress that clinicians feel is real. And I think that oftentimes, um, you know, as a primary care provider or when you're admitting somebody to the hospital, there's this sense of, especially when somebody is, 
ill. There's a sense of urgency that we have to sort of figure this out immediately. And, you know, just to say that we often, even if somebody's admitted in, you know, through the emergency room, there is often a little bit of time to talk about these things and to think about them. So sometimes there's not, but oftentimes there is. And so I think just to sort of take a deep breath and to think about the pressure we're putting on ourselves to get that, you know, I I remember getting uh, sort of orders from my resident as I was training, like go in there and get the DNR order. And sometimes it, sometimes I'll just say as a palliative care consultant, we get that request. And so I think the thing is, is like, you know, I, I tell trainees as well that if you walk into a room with an agenda, getting the DNR order, it's pretty much game over because patients and families know when you're trying to push them or get something out of them. And if we're not listening to them, and I I would say in all my years, I have never seen fighting a patient or family, contradicting them, strong arming them ever work. And if anything, I think people dig their heels in even more. So I think it's one of those things for us to check ourselves in terms of, do we have an agenda? It's okay to be worried about someone. It's okay to make sure that they understand the situation, the ramifications for their decisions. But if we take the step back and the questions that we're going to start talking to patients about anyway, about who are you as a person, what brings you joy in your life, what does quality of life mean to you, what doesn't look like quality of life to you, what outcomes of this treatment would be unacceptable to you, using that spectrum about health situations that may not be quality of life. If we understand those things, again, somebody could say, oh, I want, I want everything. Well, what does everything mean when, when you just told me that you never want to live on machines or you want to be able to talk to your family and you want to make sure that you can get back you know, to fishing? Let's talk about what this treatment may or may not get you so that you can make an informed choice about whether or not that's going to work for you. And I would say, and I've been in many situations where we're all incredibly worried about this person. They very much want, you know, the full court press. They want to go to the ICU. They want, you know, everything. They want to live as long as possible. And we won't talk right now about the person who doesn't have a surrogate decision maker. But instead of fighting that family, by being an ally, by listening, and by honoring, oftentimes, even if that person goes to the ICU and is intubated, it leaves the door open to talk about time trials with family, to talk about contingency plans if things don't work, to remind them about what quality of life meant to that person so they could see that that person maybe isn't experiencing good quality of life. But if we fight families, you know, we can all think about what that might feel like if we're on the other end, then we've closed off that sort of trusting relationship to help patients and their families as the disease progresses. I think along you know, maybe an adjacent uh, or an adjacent topic or what you made me think of with this line of discussion is, mm-hmm. I, I think there, you know, from looking at the literature over the past several years, you 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 commonly see articles published about this disparities and having discussions about end of life and attitudes towards end of life care. And can you can you talk a little bit about that? And are there ways that we can help make that better in our practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and it's real. Um, And these disparities, I think, are based on um, many people not having access to care. But I also think that it's often due to people who have experienced real discrimination and outright racism in our health system. Um, And like I said, that stuff is real. And it's no wonder that many people mistrust their doctors or health systems and things like that. So it's also one of the things that we've heard from many of the communities that we've worked with why doing being able to do advanced care planning at home with their family or in the community with people that they trust is really important. And some people will never talk about it within the clinical context. And just to say that's one of the reasons we've we actually co-created Prepare for Your Care in English and Spanish, the sort of online values-based tool and our advanced directives with 
you know, diverse communities, again, to make sure that their voice was in that information, that they were seeing stories that mattered to them and was simple enough that people could do it outside of a healthcare context. That's great. Thank you. The I, I know we're we're short on time, but one the one thing that I mean it's it's in the it's in this gentleman's name. This is Paul Polster. And <laughs> he's he's let's he went to prepare for your care. He completed his advanced directive. He designated a medical power of attorney or healthcare proxy, whatever it's called in your jurisdiction. And but what about this post form? You, you know, what is that? I've seen that for the first time within the past couple of years. I'm still a little bit fuzzy on like when I should be asking patients about that and and what exactly that does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So pulsed, and it's called different things in different states. Most states call it pulsed, is physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment. And the difference between a pulsed form and an advanced directive is a pulsed is an order that a clinician writes and signs. And an advanced directive is something that the patient can do on their own. So pulsed forms usually don't have any space to write who the surrogate decision maker is or the durable power of attorney for healthcare. So in order to make that legal, it has to be on an advanced directive. And the pulsed order, you know, is often about things that are just about at the very end of life, like CPR and mechanical ventilation and artificial nutrition, things, things of that nature. So I'll tell you that it was created specifically originally for very frail older adults in nursing homes who they were finding were automatically, if they got sick, they were being sent to the hospital and then people didn't have their advanced directives or they were finding that these orders weren't durable and going back and forth between the hospital and the nursing home. So the idea is, is that they're durable orders. It's like many states also have out of hospital DNR orders similar to that. So in a lot of these states, I'll just tell you about California, EMS can follow those orders. So if somebody, they're bright pink um, forms often, and in California, they're bright pink. So if somebody has it on their refrigerator or next to their bedside table and it's a physician order, you know, EMS can, you know, can follow those or- those orders. Um, but like I said, they're, they're supposed to be for frail older adults. They're supposed to be refilled out at every sort of transition in care. So if somebody got readmitted to the hospital, a new one should be filled out. If somebody's being sent back to the nursing home, a new one should be filled out. But you can imagine that doesn't necessarily always happen. Um, And we won't get into it now, but pulse forms are being used in crazy ways. Like I've heard of lawyers starting to fill out pulse forms and then giving that to patients to bring in to have signed by clinicians. And so we could talk for a long time about what's what's most appropriate, but if if people are seeing pulsed forms, that that's that's what that is used for. It's a physician order. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So, um, Rebecca, can you? We've covered a lot today, but could you give us just a few key take home points from what we talked about today that you really want our listeners to remember? Yeah, I think one is that. Um, Maybe it's going to be easier than you think it's going to be. You don't have to do all advanced care planning in in one sitting. Um, you can start to normalize it and do it sort of step by step over time. And I think, again, like starting with people's values and goals and preferences so that you can help sort of align those things um, with the you know the treatment options that make sense for that for that person, and I'll just so just say that you know prepare for your care um, resources that's, that's run through the University of California San Francisco. It, they're free resources; um, anybody can use them, and um, they're resources for clinicians and patients, and people can check that out. I had a chance to click through them uh, as I was preparing for this, and it's it was very easy. And like you said, it did it did add a lot of those questions about asking patients what's important to them. And I think it's a great resource. People should definitely check it out and uh, refer your patients to the site. And as you said, it's available in English and Spanish. Mm-hmm. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Great. <laughs> 
<laughs> Outstanding stuff. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Doctors Leah Witt and Molly Hoyblein, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Tima Karganov is on the website. And a reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through a partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Leah Witt. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind our sweet voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Not Only for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.